Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a great guest that I think you're really going to enjoy. So as you know, on the show, of course, we news, we do some news of the day. We do follow events, but we also like to, to dive deep into theory. We like to look at the principles behind what is happening, understand some of the ideas that shape and form the political experience. And so we've been diving into the works of Joseph de Maestro, one of the most based political theorists of all time. And we've been looking at his work study on sovereignty so we can better understand the idea of power, where it comes from, how it's wielded, how nations are formed, all of these really critical things. And joining me to continue that series today is The Prudentialist. Thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for having me back, Oren. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. So this is our third part of the stream. Of course, there's a playlist if you want to check out the previous ones, but we'll be talking about relevant topics. You don't have to go back and watch those before you watch these to enjoy this one. All right. So we are diving back into study on sovereignty. We're looking at chapter 10 of the first book. The The work is it's basically a long essay divided into what he calls two books, but it, I think it's like 70 pages total. Uh, really for this whole thing. Uh, so we're moving into chapter 10 and he's talking here about the national soul. And what he talks about here is kind of what allows people to form their identities, what allows people to have solid uh, a solid relationship to each other, an understanding of kind of right uh, right relationship with the way the nation should be, with the way they should act. And he says a really important thing about this is yet again, it's something he hits on over and over again in study on sovereignty is the importance of these things being set in stone before someone enters into the political understanding what is right, what is wrong, what is the goal of man, what is the good life, what is your relationship to the vine, what are your duties to your family? These are things that should not be individually pulled apart, assessed reasoned out he said these things can't be done that way instead they must be informed by the way what he calls prejudices which is i think a really important word that we'll get into here in a second but he says really from the cradle you have to be surrounded by dogmas i'll just read a little bit here because it's pretty good he says human reason left to its own resources is completely incapable not only of creating but also conserving any religious or political association because it can only give rise to disputes, and because, to conduct himself well, man needs belief, not problems. His cradle should be surrounded by dogmas, and when his reason awakes, all of his opinions should be given, at least all these relating to his conduct. Nothing is more vital to him than prejudices. Let us not take this word in a bad part. It does not necessarily signify false ideas, but only, in the strict sense of the word, any opinion adopted without examination. Now, these kinds of opinions are essential to man. They are, the, they are the real basis of his happiness and the palladium of empires. Without them, there can be neither re, uh, religion, morality, nor government. There should be a state religion just as there should be a state political system, or rather, religion and political dogmas mingled and merged together should together form a general or national mind sufficiently strong to repress the aberrations of the individual reason, which is, of its nature, the moral enemy of any association, whatever, because it gives birth only to divergent opinions. All right, Prudentialist, this is basically the opposite of everything that we hear today, right? That, you know, the, the, that you're going to have these opinions. The world is not formed a priori. You do not, you know, sit in the original position or the state of nature and create who you are and what your values are, choosing each and every individual part of this. Instead, he says, when your reason awakens, you should already be surrounded by these prejudices, these inbuilt understandings of the world. And of course, if we think about that, it's true, right? We can't reason from nothing, but that's not really how we're taught to approach the world today. Yeah, we're always taught to approach that you have to take things in a vacuum. You have to uh, approach things as if the past doesn't matter at all and look at the present problem and how to address it. And if you are going to look at the past, you have to address it in sort of a, a progressive historiography. I mean, the left really does understand what De Maestra is saying here. There is a state religion. There is a sort of state set of dogmas and principles. It is leftism. That is what you are raised in. 
And unfortunately, and Demeister will get into this later, uh, the form of leftism that's been unleashed in both this country and other parts of the West has been a tiger that has just been eating up every man, woman, and child that can find itself in. But you have to be raised with faith. You have to be raised with a national character and association. This is building off of what Demeister has said earlier, that you need to have homogeneity in beliefs and peoples, lest you weaken the very character of that group. And you're right. That's so critical. The left understands this, right? That they are not scared of propaganda. They are not scared of understanding that they need to control the organs of state information, education, these things. And we'll talk about that more. He gets into that in depth here, education. But they understand the importance of that because they need to establish those dogmas. They need to be to well seated. I'm going to read another section of this really quickly. Likewise, if each man makes himself the judge of the principles of government, you will see immediately the rise of civil anarchy or the annihilation of political sovereignty. Government is a true religion. It has its dogmas, its mysteries, its priests. To submit to its individual discussion is to destroy it. It has life only through the national mind, that is to say political faith, which is a creed. Many primary, uh, man's primary need is, in the nascent re is that his nascent reason should be curbed under a double yoke. It should be frustrated and it should lose itself in the national mind so it changes its individual existence for another communal existence. Just as a river flows into the ocean really exists in massive water, but without name and distinct reality. So again, something that a lot of people I think would probably be shocked to hear, but he says, look, every government is going gonna, is gonna to have this, uh, this religious aspect. You're going to have the priests of the religion. You're going to have these mysteries, you're going to have these dogmas. And of course, that's true when we talk about the American, you know, civic religion, people will call it that very freely often. They're talking about teaching, you know, the, you know, here are, here's the Declaration of Independence, here's the Constitution, here's the Bill of Rights, here are all these critical documents that that weave us together, that set our principles, right, that define us. Even many people who claim that America is a creedal nation, they're actually, what they're saying is America is a religion. Right when people say America is a creedal uh, uh, nation, what they're really saying is America is is its core is a religion you can adopt. And just like if you could you could become a Christian by adopting Christian principles, or you become a, a Muslim by by adopting Islamic dogmas, you know the, these uh, different parts of the faith will be critical. And whether we like that relationship, whether we feel comfortable as post enlightened humans with that relationship with government, it is going to exist either way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is why you will hear people from sort of centrist types where they'll just be like, well, America can be anything, you know, like it's it's guns, beer and freedom. And I mean, if that's your creed, that's an incredibly weak creed that can be changed as long as, you know, the appropriate kind of goods or treats and goodies are dealt out to the people. But I mean, also in there, you see Joseph de Maistre's uh, rather strong Catholic anti-Reformation character uh, come out here. Because you can, he he's applied this principle before when it comes to say sola scriptura. Like if every man is the interpreter of doctrine and dogma, the same issues that we saw between the Reformation and the split between the Protestant Reformation and the Catholics, the same thing's going to happen with the emergence of democracy. If everyone can determine what the creed is, you unleash national anarchy, you unleash the very terror that happened in France, and so you're seeing a very high church, hard line. You know, it's basically race, religion, divinity. These are the things that make a people. And the moment we start debating what is actually those things, we set ourselves up for an identity crisis that leads to violence and leads to the dissolution of the people. Absolutely. That's that's certainly what he is looking at here. This is this is, again, why I think it's so important to look at works like this, because they come from an older time, an older place. A, a space where people are thinking in a very different way, but a way that was very common for hundreds of thousands of years. And so today people often have not interacted with just kind of a blunt explanation of this kind of thought. And even if you're somebody who disagrees with some of these things, it's still really critical to put yourself outside of, again, books that were just written in the last century or so. You really need to, to put yourself in touch with people who, who are coming from an entirely different frame, one that is uh, a far longer lineage than perhaps the one that you're currently interacting with. All right, so his next chapter is going to be on uh, public education. But before we dive into publication, public education, let's hear from our sponsors at ISI. Universities today aren't just neglecting real education, they're actively undermining it, and we can't let them get away with it. America was made for an educated and engaged citizenry. The Intercollegiate Studies Institute is here to help. 
ISI offers programs and opportunities for conservative students across the country. ISI understands that conservatives and right-of-center students feel isolated on college campuses and that you're often fighting for your own reputation, dignity, and future. Through ISI, you can learn about what Russell Kirk called the permanent things, the philosophical and political teachings that shaped and made Western civilization great. ISI offers many opportunities to jumpstart your career. They have fellowships at some of the nation's top conservative publications like National Review, The American Conservative, and The College Thinker. If you're a graduate student, ISI offers funding opportunities to sponsor the next great generation of college professors. Through ISI, you can work with conservative thinkers who are making a difference. Thinkers like Chris Rufo, who currently has an ISI researcher helping him with his book. But perhaps most importantly, ISI offers college students a community of people that can help them grow. If you're a college student, ISI can help you start a student organization or a student newspaper or meet other like-minded students at their various conferences and events. ISI is here to educate the next generation of great Americans. To learn more, go to ISI.org. That's ISI.org. All right, now, chapter 11 is a little strange. It feels kind of oddly inserted in here at first because all of a sudden, and it's not even in this reader because because I guess the editor felt like it was, <laughs> it was irrelevant. But I think there is one critical thing about chapter 11, which is that, yeah, he, he does spends a lot of time breaking down the cost of basically public education. He says, look, you know, the, this new French Republic, they want to have this public education for everybody. And he starts listing all the costs that are going to be involved, the buildings and the teachers and, and just everything that that's going to be involved in this. And he comes to the conclusion, basically, that it's going to be enormously expensive. And of course, we know that's true, right? The public you know, education is incredibly expensive. In fact, not only is it incredibly expensive, it just becomes a boondoggle, becomes a place for uh, regime apparatchiks to get jobs, it becomes a patronage network. Uh, it, it doesn't actually uh, do a great job. And that's the second thing that he predicts, that, that, that the public education will not do a good job, that even though it'll be enormously expensive, enormously time-consuming, it'll be this massive bureaucracy, that it's going to fail. Uh, the only thing that he and this is the rail the rare Demaestre L here, like uh, the, the the one thing that he he fails at is he predicts that it will do such a bad job that it'll just collapse because everyone will just take their kids out of it and they'll just take care. He's like, who would leave their children in this failed system? What kind of insane person would continue to return children to this the, this kind of doomed project? Obviously, people are going to watch this. They're going to see how expensive it is. They're going to see it as a failure. They're going to pull their kids out. They're going to take care of themselves. And then all of a sudden, you know, the, it'll it'll just fall apart under, under the thing. Of course, we know that's exactly not what happened once people had the duty of kind of caring for their children, educating them, removed from them. They just went along with it. and They, they didn't actually take action for the most part to, to remove their children from that experience. Yeah. And I mean, this sounds very like it's out of the blue when you're reading this, but I think the last paragraph in chapter 10 actually gives you a really great transition in here. Can you, the insignificant man, you know, I, he's very much a great man theorist. He's very much a believer that there are people that are meant to serve and that are not meant to be in any places of power. Um, and those people can't ensure future generations will have that dogma. Anyone that has looked at public schooling in America will know that if you have a white child, they're going to be raised to think that their entire ancestry in the founding of this country was anathema to progress. It was evil. It was anti-white racist. And so, yeah, you can't preserve the national solar character through public education. And in the book, which I have the Imperium Press copy in front of me, you know, he mm. gives us this great breakdown of how many millions of francs it's going to cost. And the only way that they can do that, he points out, is, is that it's going to be uh, selling off the churches. It's going to be making sure that we take any money from tithing out of the churches. The presbyteries, the priests can't have anything. Um, you know, these schoolhouses, you know, it's mainly going to be young men and women, 15 or 16 years of age that are teaching it. So even less qualified people than what we have today and even younger people than would be educating them. And then additionally, like uh, professors and such are not are going to be making more money than the average person uh, outside in the in the rural areas, but in the cities, even then they can't afford it. So you're witnessing sort of a, a very similar breakdown to what we've seen in the United States and other parts with mass public education. Uh, religion becomes secularized. It becomes defunded by the people. They don't have enough to give to the state. The state robs the churches. And additionally, you begin to witness that the uneducated people are now sort of slaves to this system, as uh, Oren was just talking about here, that, oh, now we're going to see 
people be dependent on this, you know, public education system, not just the kids, but the teachers, and they're going to have the ability to influence generation after generation. And unfortunately, uh, De Maestro was a little too optimistic in hoping that this would all collapse under itself, because even if it does collapse under itself, you know, uh, the federal government, the Department of Education and the state government so quick to bail you out. Yeah, this this <laughs> it, it was very uh, it was very optimistic of him to assume that parents would just never stand for this, that they, they could not ima imagine a moment where parents would simply abandon the, that particular duty to their children. And then this is uh, something where I think um, Bertrand de Juvenal, of course, does great work talking about why, uh, you know, totalitarian states, states must collapse uh, every, every kind of duty to each other, break down every bond, remove every barrier. Uh, you know, they have to remove these, these different spheres of influence. Uh, I think uh, De Maestro was a little too optimistic about, optimistic about the continued uh, resilience of those barriers, those bonds, those, those spheres of influence to, to ward off uh, some of the worst aspects of the state. Um, but, uh, but that said, it is still, like I said, even for, even for all the uh, kind of uh, mind-numbing figures he runs down for a while in that chapter, it does uh, make some really important points about kind of the nature of public education, which is critical to uh, kind of this, this post-Enlightenment project that he is largely criticizing. Absolutely. So our next chapter is chapter 12, and this one is him revisiting in many ways the uh, philosophy will destroy your nation uh, kind, kind of uh, deal that he did in previous chapters. He talks this time not just about Rousseau, but he talks about Voltaire. He says Voltaire destroyed uh, religion and Rousseau destroyed government, and the two worked to undermine he each other simultaneously. Again, he's very big about this link. Um, it's, it's, again, very much the opposite in many ways of kind of how we are taught to think about this through kind of the, uh, the American separation of church and state post-enlightenment uh, lens. Uh, he very much sees these things as critical. They're woven together. They will always interact with each other. They will always inform each other. And the corruption of one is inevitably the corruption of the other. And so he says that these two enlightenment forces both looked to pull apart what we knew. Uh, they destroyed the kind of healthy dogmas and prejudices of both faith and government, uh, you know, kind of uh, splaying both open to human reason and inevitably deconstructing both. So he are again, this is why I think it's so important to read people like the because he's writing right after the enlightenment occurs, right as it's occurring. And these things are spooling up. We're sitting at the end of this thing, watching the kind of the bones get picked clean of both uh, kind of right religion and right government. Uh, wondering how all this stuff got deconstructed. He, he was calling this shot, you know, back in the 1790s. So. Yeah, and one of the important things out of this chapter, I mean, we've joked that he's coming after, uh, you know, for internet parlance, he's coming after the theory cells out there in the world. But he, he points out that this sort of tag team of Voltaire and Rousseau, at least in the eyes of de Maestro and with respects to the French people, is, is that once you have, you know, entertained the inattentive eyes, sort of the, the, the popular masses of the world, and you give them this philosophy, but you also try and approach it from reason, you're beginning to take away those national characters and those dogmas that the, the French people were raised with. I mean, he writes here um, that... Uh, let's say here, if one asks these men what they have done, they will speak to you of their influence on opinion. They will tell you that they have destroyed prejudices and especially fanaticism, for that that is their great world. They will celebrate in magnificent terms the kind of magistracy that uh, Voltaire exercised over his century during a long career. But those words, prejudice and fanaticism, in the final analysis, signify the belief of several nations. Voltaire has chased this belief out of a host of heads. That is to say, he has destroyed it. And this is precisely what I am saying. Um, and so when we take out what makes French people French, like what is the French character? If we've taken out their ability to be fanatic about their population, about their country, about their monarchy, about their God, uh, you have a large collection of people that are easily able to be ruled over a new political formula. One where it doesn't really matter what mean what it means to be French or what it means to be English. It just means that I can have a, a lesser creed, a lesser fanaticism, and I can get more excited about guns, beer, and freedom than I am any sort of traditional idea of a nation or a people. And he really makes a clear point that once you get rid of 
long established institutions that instill tradition, whether that be the Catholic Church, whether that be the monarchy, whether that be French customs that are traditionally located in, say, your part of the, the country, whether that be outside Paris or in Brittany or Normandy or wherever. Once that's gone, it's very hard to get back. And it becomes basically destroyed inside the soul of a people and that they will be entertained by a philosophy that's very easy to poke holes into and that there's nothing after that. Well, once the philosophy is gone, what do you have? Well, you just double down. And that to Demeister, that implicates that really the, the national soul has been corrupted, corroded and destroyed. Yeah. And if you're somebody who's, oh, yeah, I'm a materialist, I, you know, the spiritual death of a country that that's not real. This the, this metaphysical mumbo jumbo doesn't really matter. I mean, just think about, you know, the United States withdrawing from Afghanistan. Right. Like if, if we're at perhaps the point, the point at which there is the most disparity ever in human history between a first world, you know, na nation hegemonic army of the United States. And a bunch of guys who like hoed, you know, uh, herd goats somewhere in Afghanistan. And the, if the goat herders can make the American army leave, what's the difference? It, it's not, you know, tactics. It's not money. It's not firepower technology. It's none of those things, right? It's will. It's belief. It's fanaticism. The guy, the, the guy who wants it more wins it, right? You have a lot of people right now, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but, but since it's relevant, we'll, we'll touch it real quick. A lot of people right here now blown away by the fact that many Palestinians are willing to trade everything, including their children, for the elimination of their enemies and say, oh, this is barbaric. Oh, this is. And sure, it is. And guess what? It also means fanaticism has an incredible power all its own. It can destroy all kinds of modern things that we don't believe uh, should be assailable by, you know, by kind of these old antiquated beliefs. But the strong gods come back and you, you, got, you got to understand that these things are real and they have a really serious impact on your society. Yeah, I mean, the same thing can be applied to any issue that you're kind of seeing in America. Is It's about will. I mean, is there a will to overcome sort of anti-natalist rhetoric? Is there a will to overcome the vibrant, you know, anti-white racism or the anti-Christian attitudes in your country? Uh, those guys are, like Oren said, they're they're willing to die for it. And the, the question I think has become for a lot of people, well, what are you willing to sacrifice other than maybe getting in an account banned? And then when we see people who do sacrifice things, like those who get debanked or those who get canceled, um, we act as if, oh, they're dead. Oh, well, so be it. Bye-bye. And, you know, that's that's the destruction of soul. That's the destruction of fanaticism and our destruction of prejudice and not in the prejudice of like, oh, I hate this group of people. Prejudice and the ability to discern, no, this is bad for my country. This is bad for my people. This is bad for my children. And De Maestra is in the you know ground zero watching his country be torn apart by liberal fanaticism, a philosophy that is so weak and that has only destroyed most of the Western world and a lot of its foundations. And instead, you know, he points out that the same thing Edmund Burke pointed out with the French Revolution. Who are you to change the rights of those who have yet to be born? And he has enough judgment and prejudice to say, no, this is not good for the country. Um, and the same thing, I think, can apply to what's going on overseas. And the same thing that we should also take a look at here in America with our own cultural battles is, um, you know, words are one thing. But, you know, we do have to protest. We do have to do things like that. Because if not, you know, we're, we're as empty in our philosophy as the liberals that he's criticizing here. There's another passage here I want to read real quick because I think it's very important. Wherever the individual reason dominates, there can be nothing great. For everything great rests on belief. And the clash of individual opinion left to themselves produces only skepticism, which is destructive of everything. General and individual morality, religion, laws, revered customs, useful prejudices, nothing is left standing. Everything falls before it. It is the universal solvent. Uh, or as uh, uh, our you know previous episode we did, uh, Nick Land put it succinctly: every uh, disagreement is an opportunity to rule. Right? This is this is kind of the the original uh, uh, understanding of this is that the constant division, the constant need to reassess, question, uh, you know, uh, break down, it it destroys all of these binding agents, all of these things that make people who they are at their core. core that these axioms that define a society and a people, they all get eaten alive. It dissolves every one of these things. At the, at the end, you're left hollowed out because you've 
questioned every single thing. The idea that you should question everything was always a terrible maxim. Uh, and it's the one that's that can bring a ruin to a nation. Yeah, and I, I think he kind of brings it up here really just perfect. He says, A pen friendly to religion when it addresses reproaches to philosophy is suspicious to a great number of readers who persist in seeing fanaticism wherever they do not see incredulity or indifference. And so, I mean, it's a really important thing here when we see people that will rail on. And I mean, we, we've seen this from Buckley to the National Review guys that will say, oh, we stand athwart, you know, the cliff of history yelling stop. Well, you know, what is that to many people other than indifference? You're, you're trying to re reproach philosophy from a way that these philosophers can't understand anymore. They can't understand the importance of having your religion, your dogmas, your prejudices. They've adopted something completely different. So all that they see is the indifferent whinings of someone who already lost. He also brings in here the, the critical relationship between patriotism and religion, saying that you, you cannot have patriotism without religion. Once the religion is gone, the patriotism will inevit inevitably go with it, that these things are, are twin pillars that interact with each other, that hold a nation aloft, and that once you tear out kind of that, that spiritual binding agent of religion, you will, the, the, the patriotism will become hollow, it will become eaten out, and eventually will simply fall away. I mean, we see that today ever so clearly. I mean, what is the, the national religion of the state of the United States? It is progressivism, it is leftism, uh, any old religion or any old patriotism of, you know, whether it be you going to a Baptist church and, you know, loving your country and raising the flag at half staff every Veterans Day on November 11th. Um, to them, you're, you're a heretic and it will wither away and they will destroy you for it because that old belief, that old religion has been replaced by a suicidal ideation that is, you know, progressive political philosophy. I'm trying to find it here because it's not my reader. There's a great line about, uh, or no, you had the quote. I think you had it marked down of where he talks about how uh, the loss of these things. Yes, it was a bloodier age, but it was also an age of oracles. And it was an age of, you know, things being revivified. Uh, it's it's not up here, so I can't read it real quick. But it's yeah, but no, I mean, here here we go. Oh, here uh, we go. To the extent that this power, oh, let's see, um, yeah, uh, da, 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 yeah, okay, but as soon as the idea of divinity is the principle of human action, this action is fruitful, creative, and invincible. An unknown force makes itself felt on all sides, animating, warming, vivifying all. With whatever errors, whatever crimes, ignorance, and human corruption have defiled this august idea, it nonetheless retains its incredible influence. Amid massacres, men multiply, the nations display dizzying vigor. In former times, Rousseau said, Greece flourished amid the cruelest wars. Blood flowed there, and the whole country was covered with men. Without a doubt, but it was a time of century of wonders and oracles, a century of faith, after the manner of men of this time, that is to say, the century of exalted patriotism. When one is said to the great being that he exists, one has not yet said anything. It must be said that he is existence. But he, being one, has only one now completely filled forever. A drop of this immeasurable ocean of existence seems to detach itself and fall upon a man who speaks and acts in the name of the deity. His action astonishes and gives idea to creation. The centuries pass by and his work remains. All among men that is great, good, agreeable, true, and enduring comes from existence, the source of all existences. So, I mean, even if things were bloody in the past, uh, we still remember Socrates, we still remember Plato, we still remember the Spartans of Thermopylae, we still remember who was there at the Battle of Marathon, um, and we still remember even the wars inside of Italy and this, you know, succession of the fights between Italian states. Those times were bloody, but great works had been made. And once you abandon all that and you abandon the drive to create something because you believe in it to a point that you're willing to fight for it, you become an indifferent philosopher and you become someone without fanaticism, without belief. And to, to quote the line from the, you know, the movie Troy is like, that is why no one will remember your name. And yeah. that's a really damning indictment from Demaistre. It really is. And it's it, and especially echoing to, I think people of the modern day, because again, I think what people, when, when things like what happens, you know, in, in the middle East or, 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 you know, whenever conflict breaks out anywhere at this point, the first reaction of of pretty much every modern nation, every wealthy uh, kind of kind of uh, comfortable nation, is how could anyone actually fight for something they believe in? Yeah, that that's that's something that it's really difficult. You know, I, I used to teach and I would talk to students 
And the current generation cannot grasp someone fighting for something, somebody else besides themselves. Like they, they can understand why you would need to maybe fight to defend yourself or maybe your family. But, but the idea that you would defend a nation, defend, uh, you know, the honor of something, uh, you know, that that's, you know, fight for the glory of something that's just completely foreign uh, because, you know, we've, we've become so soft in these ways. And, uh, you know, myself included, you know, not, not, uh, you know, not, not throwing shade on, on anyone else with it without myself. It's something, it's an idea that is very difficult for a lot of people to grasp, but it has been the driver of greatness throughout history. It has been a critical aspect of what animates great civilizations and the lack of it really can show you the road to civilizational death, which is what he's warning about when he's constantly harping on philosophy is that this, this is the road of civilizational death. It will drive out and it will kill all these things that allow a civilization for, to fight for its own survival. Yeah. I mean, it cannot be stressed enough that once you've lost that animating drive, something that is pre-eternal or divine, uh, you know, what, what, what is it more than maybe a rear guard action to just keep your own self afloat and that that's it. And I mean, these, and sometimes it may sound like we're just spewing out empty words or that we're just, you know, doing this for entertainment or infotainment. But at the end of the day, the question is an indictment, not just on the people to Meister's criticizing, but it's an indictment really into a lot of the West. I mean, what a lot of people get up and about with the sort of Nietzscheanism thing. And I apologize for the sort of slight tirade here, but it's kind of important to recognize that when Nietzsche says that God is dead, it's an indictment that the animating force behind the West that, you know, grasping for the divine had been killed off by our own reason and by our own logic. And it's a really good indictment of how we've sort of lost ourselves to these philosophies and we're giving ourselves a way to rot away nihilistically. And whether you agree with Nietzsche's answer to that or you want to go to something different, it does indicate to a lot of us what Demeister is saying here that you need that desire for glory. You need that belief that makes you willing to go above and beyond um, and whether that comes at a cost, it may be determined by you or someone else, but you need to have that belief system, whatever it may be. Yeah, I think Nietzsche's, uh, you know, uh, he, he was saying, hey, you know, look at the blood on our hands. We have to become worthy of this murder. We have to find a way forward without it. And the question of could men do that seems to be the answer was absolutely not. And so <laughs> and so uh, the only thing to do is that didn't is then to look back to that which had animated before. All right. so. Uh, 13 is uh, relatively short. Uh, he, he again, he once again returns to the dangers of philosophy and lone reason. I think the main takeaways from this one are um, that he, he talks about how philosophers are usually weak men who can't implement their own ideas. He spends a decent amount talking about how none, none of these people who come up with these grand grandiose ideas almost ever actually have the ability to uh, be men of action to take. Uh, those ideas and implement them. This is uh, uh, another criticism you'll see in, in people like Oswald Spangler, you know, who, but he does say that these ideas do still have importance, even though the people who come up with them don't have the ability to carry them out. They don't have the wherewithal to wield the power and make the decisions to, to come make them out. He says, once those uh, are out, once those ideas are out in society, they can destroy the social order. They, they, there are contagions that are let loose and they, that universal acid can eat through everything. So we kind of get a, a, a Warhammer 40K-esque, uh, there are dangerous ideas that need to be uh, suppressed uh, kind of approach here. Because he says, look, even if, even if these weak men sit in their, you know, their, their towers and they you know, come up with these things and then they die alone in their, in their uh, chambers, their ideas can still go out and destroy the world. Um, and I think as we look at the, the last few hundred years of pure ideology, uh, we can see that uh, that that is very true and very easily something that can manifest in, in the words of somebody like Karl Marx. Yeah, info hazards are real, kids. And I mean, uh, he, he has this great line here at the very end of this chapter when um, he says, when citing someone who had been executed from by the, the National Convention, you know, when he was dealing with the, the terrors of the of the revolution, he says, I can be treated as I treated others. When men met with principle, I led by myself and it is above all the principles Rousseau that have killed me. And he was right. The tiger who tears does what he must. The real culprit is the one who unmuzzles him and sets him upon society. Do not think that you are absolved by your affected thernides of Marat or Robespierre. 
Listen to truth. Wherever you are, wherever there are unfortunates who believe you, there will be such monsters. For every society contains scoundrels who are waiting to tear it apart to be rid of restraint of the laws. But without you, Marat and Robespierre would have been would have done no harm because they would have been held back by the restraint you have broken. Uh, and it's sort of just an indictment to regular people, but also those in power that listen. You give these people as much power as much as that you follow them. Uh, sort of a warning about demagoguery, as usual, with these sort of dangerous uh, progressive ideals. Is, is that you know if we if you buy into the power and you unrestrain and you let crazy academics talk about decolonialization or the the problems and the epidemic of whiteness, uh, eventually that tiger will come and eat you and your children. And we are just as much to blame as the academic scholars that let them in. I mean, we talk about academic freedom for conservatives, but we must remember that, you know who the first people were talking about academic freedom? It was communists in the 1950s wanting to, to teach in colleges. And so, you know, it's how the, how the tables have turned in that instance. And we've unleashed uh, terrible evils by not letting these uh, people be restrained or arrested. Yeah, and, and I did a, a episode on uh, on this last week that got a little bit of traction here about decolonization and that terminology and how it's been allowed to be used by BLM and critical race theory and, and academia even since the 60s. This has been part of the radical leftist movement for a long time. And it took the, you know, the BLM Chicago uh, branch posting, you know, this this Palestine, Palestinian support meme and and marching for decolonization for people to finally put this together that what decolonization always meant was actually horrific violence against civilian target it was always about your destruction uh they had to see it play out in a foreign country to understand its real meaning uh but yeah you should have never allowed people to push this idea to advance this idea to uh, to talk like this and and gain power inside your system with this uh because of course uh that that's what that always meant and so that's uh, something that uh, people they, they don't believe they can't they can't really understand until I guess the you know it comes to true fruition when they really see uh, the, those beliefs acted out and they can finally understand the implications of these ideas that had been percolating in our elite uh, institutions for a very long time. Mm -hmm. All right, so book two uh, is the uh, part of the study on sovereignty, and this is kind of the meat and potatoes. Uh, book one was really him talking about what makes a nation, what, why, you know, you need religion, why you need folkways, why you need uh, this common identity, uh, ripping into this idea that you can just have this state of nature or this original position. You can have this artificial construct of a nation. He, he, he was tearing all that down. But now we're actually getting into a study on sovereignty. Now we're actually going to talk about what sovereignty is. He's going to go into the different forms of government in this part. We're probably only going to get through the first chapter of this book and then clean the rest up uh, in our next part of the series. But I wanted to go ahead and get to this today. So I'm just going to start reading from the beginning here because he actually lays out uh, the definition of sovereignty uh, here at the beginning. Every species of sovereignty is absolute of its nature. However, the powers are organized whether they are vested in, uh, in one pair of hands or divided. In the last analysis, it will always be an absolute power which is able to commit evil with impunity, which is thus, from this point of view, uh, despotic, and, and the full force of the term, and against which there is no defense other than rebellion. What, uh, whatever sovereign powers are divided, the conflict of these different powers can be looked on as the deliberation of one of a single sovereign whose reason weighs up the pros and cons but once a decision has been made, the situation is the same in both cases and uh, and will of any sovereign, whatever, is always invincible. However, sovereignty is, def is defined and vested. There's always one inviolable and uh, uh, it is always one inviolable and absolute. Take, for example, the English government, the kind of political trinity which makes up uh, which makes it up does not stop sovereignty from being one uh, there uh, there as elsewhere. The powers balance each other, but once they are in agreement, there uh, there is then only one will which cannot be thwarted by any other legal will. And Blackstone was right to claim that the English king and parliament together can do anything. So this is where a lot of guys that are very popular today, a lot of, a lot of guys that I have talked about, that Prudentius have talked about, get a, a very important set of ideas. Uh, Curtis Yarvin, Minchus Molbug, is famous for the idea that uh, sovereignty cannot, that sovereignty is always conserved. That whenever you think 
you have divided sovereignty whenever you think you have restrained sovereignty, whatever you have put in charge of that division, whatever you have put in charge of that restraint, whatever is restraining sovereignty, that is actually what is sovereign. There is never this situation where you can truly restrain the force of that power. And this is also where, you know, Carl Schmidt draws from this when he says that the sovereign is he who decides on the exception. Yes, you know, as, as Demaestra says here, you can't technically divide power. You can't technically attempt to restrain power. But at some point, there will be somebody who can unify that power. And once that power is unified through whatever the process, whatever the decision is, then that force is made. And that is the true sovereign. That is that is the force that is without restraint. That is the absolute power that will be brought and will make decisions and will not be held back once it's set in motion. Yeah, I mean, this is where so much of Carl Schmidt gets his writings from that, you know, even when we try to divide or have a division of powers, as was discussed about by a lot of French writers at the time, Rousseau, of course, being one of them, uh, you know, this was the concept that, you know, we thought this is the way that we can contain sort of these despotic overreaches, but in fact, it it does no such thing. I mean, this is uh, what he writes here. Um, De Maestra says, you know, the famous division of powers, which so agitated French heads, does not really exist in the French Constitution of 1791. In order for there to have been a real division of powers, the king would have had to have been invested with a power capable of balancing that of the assembly and even of the judging of the representatives in certain cases, as so he could judge others. But the king lacked this power so that all the labors of the legislators only succeeded in creating a single power without counterweights, that is to say, tyranny, if one makes liberty to consist in the division of powers. It was all very much worth tormenting Europe, perhaps spending four million men crushing a nation under the weight of all possible misfortunes, and then defiling it with crimes no unknown to hell. I mean, he's calling out the idea that, hey, this division of powers things is, is worse than anything that the devil could come up with. But, you know, if there's no way to keep Congress in check, if there's no way to keep the National Assembly in check, then there really is only one sovereign, and it's in a crowd of people that have no real way to check on them. And I mean, we see this problem that exists today in Congress to where, well, who really decides our exceptions today? And it always kind of becomes the mask, the mystery cult of power, as Curtis Yarvin writes, because, you know, we have on paper how our, our representatives are supposed to act. And I think I've said this before, but I mean, if you want the most honest five minutes of a congressman saying anything, go look up former Senator Ben Sass's, uh statements during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, because he'll tell you straight up, Congress doesn't do its power. It's advocated its responsibility to federal bureaucracies and federal agencies of three-letter, you know, alphabet soup in the executive branch. We write laws that just simply say department heads and secretaries get to do this. And so when the American people get mad, Congress can't do anything about it because they can't fire those people or they don't have the will to fire them. So the Supreme Court becomes the only place where Americans have politics left. It's the politics of last resort. And anytime there's a last resort or there's a desire to find out what the exception to the rule is, a lot of our sovereignty goes to nine unelected judges uh, in America's Supreme Court. And De Maestra is simply writing that the division of powers, it's a great concept on paper, doesn't work in practice, doesn't exist in the French Constitution of 1791. And as we clearly see today in America, the division of powers we have today there's no real way to counterbalance the other ones because you don't see Congress voting to depose judges uh, and impeach them at will. I mean, we have we didn't get rid of Ginsburg anytime she was there. We didn't get rid of anyone's in the federal circuit courts that made it easy for big corporations like Purdue and the Sackler family to get off scot-free despite killing thousands of people with opioids. Um, so, no, we, we don't really have a division of powers and sovereignty resides in those that can determine not just the exception, as Schmidt would say, but to ensure that the people who get away with it keep getting away with it. Yeah. And he specifically says, you know, that, that the sovereign cannot be judged that, that, yeah. that anything that judges the sovereign is the actual sovereign. And he also says that, you know, the, the power is, is really held by those that exercise it. So he's once again, attacking this idea of a truly representative government, popular sovereignty, where you're going to, you're going to have uh, the people are in charge. He says, once you've handed that power, over over to these representatives once you've handed this power over to this ruling class if they're the ones exercising the power then they're the ones that effectively have the power you can say you have popular sovereignty you can say the crowd of the people have the power but they're only exercising that power basically if they're the mob directly taking it out on somebody if they're if they're handing that power symbolically 
over to a group of people and they're never as individuals, uh, you know, actively asserting that power, then they don't have it. And, and that that's kind of, again, the key of decisionism. It's, it's who's actually making the decision, who's actually exercising power. And this is another reason that kind of the classical conservative, small government only at any cost kind of approach has also failed in many ways uh, when it comes to the American government, because the, that that dedication to we don't exercise power. The only thing we do is restrain power. We try to restrain it when our enemy's in charge. And then when we're in charge, we don't exercise it. Well, that means that only one side ever grows their power. And the person, people who actually exercise power are the actual sovereigns. You getting voted in, but deciding to never exercise power is basically you abdicating sovereignty. And this is really, really critical, guys. If you if you want to get down to like one of the core revelations of whatever you want to call it, reactionary philosophy, NRX, uh, Italian elite theory, whatever it is, the critical thing is that we are never ruled by a system. We are never ruled by, there's no rule of law. There is no rule of constitutions. There are only ever rule of people. And if the people are worthy of those things, then you will flourish. And if the people are not worthy of those things, you will falter. Laws do not enforce themselves. Constitutions do not make peoples. Like paper documents, rules, systems, you know, ideologies, they cannot in and of themselves maintain a civilization and create justice. Those things can only ever be done by people. And while that, that's really scary for us because we're taught that that's dangerous. Power in the hands of, of individuals is dangerous and it needs to be dispersed, it needs to be spread out. We don't want to see it. We want to pretend it's not happening, but it always happens. And so the only question is, are the people in charge good or are the people in charge bad? It's never a question of will people be in charge of you. You will be ruled. So if you will be ruled, if there will be a sovereign, we might as well know who they are and have the and and know if they're doing a good job and that that's really a critical thing to understand here. i mean this is why a lot of the early writings in unqualified reservations that's why yarvin would call himself a formalist he's just like put power out there name it at least make this better than the sort of mystery and how we understand things that's why he kind of wants to have it easier to just identify who's in charge and who isn't as for de Maestra, you know he he talks about the aspects of sovereignty and he says, you know, too many details on this particular topic would be uncalled for here. Suffices for us to know that sovereignty is necessarily one and necessarily absolute. The great problem then is not to prevent the sovereign from willingly, invincibly, which implies contradiction, but to prevent him from acting unjustly. The Roman jurist consults would have been much criticized for having that the prince is above the laws, but it would have been more charitable toward them to observe that they meant only civil laws or more precisely the formalities established for different civil acts. But even if they had meant the prince could violate moral laws with impunity, that is to say, without being able to be judged, they would only have advanced a truth, no doubt sad, but incontestable. While I may be forced to agree that we have the right to massacre Nero, I would never admit that we have the right to judge him. For the law where would never admit that the right to, um, where he would never be judged to be made either by him or another, which would imply either a law made sovereign against himself or a sovereign above the sovereign, two suppositions equally inadmissible. I mean, this goes back again to the aspects of culture, dogmas, religion, that, you know, who are we to judge the king? But I mean, if he does something wrong, yeah, we can kill him. That's perfectly <laughs> fine. But I can't judge the man. He is sovereign. He is above me. He is, um, whether in aristocratic societies, there's always been sort of a, a landed gentry class that is going to be above those and are the ones that are successful, whether by divine right of kings, by hereditary monarchy or birthright he can't violate moral laws. And that's why morality is so important to hold on to that religious fanaticism, these public dogmas and prejudices. And that once you get rid of those things, as we've just spent the last hour talking about, once you get rid of that, once we have philosophy, once we have indifference, once we have no willpower to actually rise up and defend anything, then you can be abused by anybody, unjust Kings, unjust sovereigns, really crappy congressmen that make millions of dollars a year off defense contracts while advocating to let millions of more people in who have no right being in this country. That's how we get here. 
Um, and yeah, he kind of gets a little uh, spicy, a little Fed posty, you know, like, yeah, we, we, we can't judge Nero, but we can kill him. Yeah, it, I actually. <laughs> it's, it's a totally different world than what we have now. The, the <laughs> sovereignty is just a whole different. It's so alien to us that, yeah, Nero can fiddle while Rome burns and we can't judge him for that. But, you know, if he violates the, the divine right of, of Jupiter or Mars, then all bets are off. Yeah, I, I have that same passage written down as a, <laughs> as a key one because it it's a really like you said it's a really different understanding and i think uh in many ways a more honest understanding like you said curtis yarvin focuses a lot on formalism let's at least know who this guy is even if he's doing a terrible god uh, or terrible job uh if he if he is doing that and we know who it is then the consequences can be clear even then we know what's going on so so and demaestra is is agreeing here right he says look nero we know who the emperor is it's nero Yes, he has all the power, but if he's crazy and he's doing a terrible job and everybody knows he's doing a terrible job, then maybe we just get rid of him, right? And like, and and like, it, it's it's this off and on switch that people are uncomfortable with, right? As post-enlightenment modern people, we want every decision to be dispersed. We want everything to be orderly. We want it to go through a procedure. We want to there be rules and regulations. I want to check the the constitutional article for that and what what you know, what what are the, you know, rules of order in the in the Congress that we need to go through to remove this? He's like, "No. Like either he's an absolute sovereign or he's dead meat." Right? Those are your two options. Like that you flip the switch. Either this guy is he's got the power, he wields it, he solves the problem, or he does such a terrible job that we all understand that he needs to be removed. But at no point does that remove the office or its sovereignty, right? Like, like the people can be sovereign in the moment in which it removes the ruler, but then it cedes that sovereignty back over to a new ruler, right? And this is something that has happened, of course, throughout history. There is, a, there is an accountability mechanism in monarchy. Uh, it's because you're the one guy. And if something goes wrong, everybody knows who to go for, right? There's no, there's no confusion about who sent the troops or, you know, who put you in jail or who, who made the nation poor, who got you into the disastrous war, uh, or who opened your borders to, you know, to invaders. Like none of those things is confusing. You know who to blame. And, and so he's saying, this is a return to this. And this is also why he says, again, like it, it's not about removing the sovereignty. The sovereignty can't be removed. There will always be someone who ultimately unifies that power into a decision. The only thing you can do is, find out whether or not that person is moral, find out whether or not justice is being done in that instance. You can never remove the decision, which again, as modern people, is something very, very uncomfortable for us. We want those decisions dispersed. We want that, we want that uh, you know, responsibility spread out. We don't want to think that there's ever an existential crisis, ever a reason to have, you know, to, have to act. There, there should only ever be procedures and, and careful deliberation. But Demaster is really pushing back against that notion saying, no, this is always the relationship between the ruled and the ruler. Yeah, and I, I think this is a really important thing to hold on to, and this goes back to his criticism of the sort of separation of powers or the ability that we can have one branch of government hold against another. Every time that we bureaucratize or we say, oh, this is a check against that, it's very much like the old story of how do we get rid of like a rat infestation? Oh, well, we'll, we'll just get a bunch of snakes. They'll eat the rats. Well, then how do we take care of the snakes? Well, we'll bring in like a bunch of... Uh, any other sort of uh, animal to go in. We'll bring in a bunch of badgers to do that. Well, how do we get rid of the badgers? We'll get, we'll put in owls and just, it escalates until you have so much bureaucracy, so many animals, you don't know what you're doing. And for us, that, that that's a key question. We say, oh, the president's in, in charge. He's not in charge because, well, especially this president with Joe Biden. But I mean, yeah. you have a, a, a laundry list of executives and, and secretaries and joint chiefs of staff. I mean, was, was Donald Trump sovereign? when Mark Milley and other members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff lied to him about the American military's presence in Syria or what their policy was towards Iran. That means that the president, as sort of the chief executive officer of in charge of the military, was being lied to by his own government. That's treason, last I checked in my book. And so now you're in a position where, yeah, we have all these sort of ways to bureaucratize and diffuse it and to separate it out. Well, then all that that's done is it's made it impossible to tell us whose sovereignty is and where sovereignty lies and who's in charge. Because now there's not just one guy I have to take care of. There's not one Nero, but potentially thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Neros that one would have to get rid of. And some would argue that that means, yes, that means the continuity of government. But 
what good is the continuity of government if all those thousands of Neros are just bringing in more people to dilute my vote and that want to trans my children and want to make sure that America is not guns, beer, and freedom or, you know, Lewis and Clark and Johnny Appleseed, but, you know, something like Lizzo and something worse. Like, we have movies now to Americanize the new populations about flaming hot Cheetos and Air Jordans. That's the creedal nation that progressives want, and it becomes harder and harder to determine, well, who do I need to get rid of or replace here in order to not have this happen? And these are the things that Demeister is writing about, you know, nigh, you know, 200 years ago to, to warn us, oh, things are really bad. Yeah, if you want to understand the American political system in 30 seconds, think about the fact that Mark Milley uh, lied to the elected president of the United States about military action, ignored his orders. Mark Milley is still in power. Donald Trump is facing criminal charges. Yep. If you... If you if you if you want to understand the the flow of power in America, you understand want to understand who where sovereignty lies in America. Uh, there there you go in, in in one quick and easy example. All right, let's go ahead and go over to our questions of the people. But before we do that, Mr. Prudentialist, is there anything people should be looking for from your end? Yeah, absolutely. I had a great talk with a gentleman named Illegitimate Scholar, Samuel Urban. He's a fan of the show. Uh, he's a cultural anthropologist. So we had a good conversation yesterday on cultural anthropology, how it's dominated by the left and how do we understand uh, history and people and how to you know look at where the world is going. And then tomorrow, as always, just find me on uh, Substack, thepredentialist.substack.com. I've got a, a lengthy article coming out soon on Marshall McLuhan in war. And then last but not least, um, I have my review of Saurabh Amari's book, uh, Tyranny Inc., coming out in the Mars Review of Books, which you can purchase um, in just three days. So be sure to keep an eye out for that. Excellent, excellent. Make sure that you're checking out the Prudentialist work. All right, so to the questions of the people, we've got Florida Henry here for $5. Can you think of any institution not under the leftist tiger? Um, no. Uh, so, so when, when Curtis Yarvin wrote, uh, unqualified reservations back in, you know, 2007, 2008, he talked about red America or red empire and blue empire. And he said, you know, blue empire owns things like the state department and the university system. And he said, basically red empire is like the military and a few businesses, right? Like that, that was pretty much red empire. And at this point, you know, in the in the, in the you know, twenty or so years almost since he wrote that, uh, those things have all been captured. There, there really is almost no institution that even uh, wields uh, its power, uh, pretending to be in the interests of Red America. I guess technically, the Republican Party at least makes noises about being, uh, you know, for Red America. Uh, but of course, I think we can pretty much all see that that's uh, all all that is outside of maybe a few uh, individuals. Uh, the, the Republican Party is deeply uh, interested in uh, the approval of places like The New York Times and completely uninterested in, say, uh, you know, the, the well-being of someone in Alabama. Uh, and so I, I cannot really think of a major institution uh, that you, you could say is really uh, right wing. I mean, some 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 outliers, but but nothing that wields real power in the united states yeah i mean this is why the the conquest three laws are so important to understand and it also mm -hmm. kind of they're kind of a really great way to indicate maybe hereditary monarchy is not all that bad because when you know we're, we're conservative about the things we know the most and we tend to be um very likely you know any right-wing institution that isn't explicitly right-wing will inevitably become left-wing and that, you know, any organization that does bad things, just assume it's being ran by a cabal of your enemies. And that's a big thing. Number two, especially, is really important that any institution not explicitly right wing, um, you know, it will inevitably become left wing over time. And the same thing with like right wing in institutions. This is that if you give things up to a board or if you don't, you know, make sure that you have a trusted successor, uh, things can go in a radically different direction. I mean, the Ford Foundation is an excellent example of that after, you know, the original founder of the Ford Foundation died, you know, he, the board, you know, took over rather than his sons, and it's led to all sorts of progressive causes being funded. And so, you know, when you see institutions or talks about parallel institutions being made by the right, you know, I, I sincerely hope and pray that people like Nate Fisher at New Founding or those at IM1776 or whatever Chris Rufo was doing, 
you better have good successors in charge because if not, these will turn into the same milk toast center right, center left institutions that they're railing against right now. But at the current moment, I don't, I can't think of anyone outside of some sole proprietorships that aren't under leftist control. Yeah, sorry, no, no white pills on that uh, front there, Florida Henry. But thank you for your donation, uh, uh, Blail Bradley for uh, five Canadian. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. All right, guys, I think that's everything for today. Thank you for coming by. I think we've got one more uh, of these to go ahead and finish out. So it'll be a four-part series on Joseph DeMaestre and his study on so sovereignty. Thank you so much for joining us. Like I said, if you'd like to catch the previous two to kind of fill in some of the gaps, uh, you can find those in a playlist on the YouTube channel or check it out on the podcast. And of course, if you would like to get these broadcasts as podcasts, you need to go ahead and subscribe to the Orman McIntyre show on your favorite podcast platform. When you do ratings, reviews, those things really help out with the algorithm guys very much appreciate it. Thank you once again to the Prudentialist for coming on. And as always, we'll talk to you next time.